Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Skylit, Skylight Books podcast series, where we bring you all our favorite authors from the comfort of their homes to your headphones. Uh, Today, we're really excited. We have a conversation for you. Um, We are hosting Tess Taylor in conversation with Stephanie Dandler. Um, It's going to be a great chat. Um, You're going to get to hear some poetry. So, Can't wait to get started, but first um, I'll introduce myself. I'm Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. You know me, I'm on all the episodes. Uh, And today our guests are Stephanie Dandler. Stephanie Dandler is a novelist, memoirist, and screenwriter based in Los Angeles, California. Her memoir, Stray, just came out from Knopf, so get a copy of that if you can. And Tess Taylor is the author of five collections of poetry. Her second book, Work and Days, was hailed as Our Moments Georgic by critic Stephanie Burt and named one of the 10 best books of poetry of 2016. She served as poetry critic for NPR's All Things Considered for over a decade. And in the spring of 2020, she published two books of poems, Rift Zone and Last West, Road Songs for Dorothea Lang. Tess and Steph, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. This is such a thrill. Um, I'll start by saying that this book was sent to me and I had no idea who it was from. It came with no card or explanation. And I thought, oh, a book of poetry. Maybe I bought this while I was half asleep. Um, And as soon as I opened it up, I felt this incredible kindredness, um, this feeling that you are, Tess, were articulating so much of what haunts me about being from California and being back in California as an adult. And I tore through it and have read it through many times since, most recently last night. And I just, I can't tell you how intimate and gorgeous I find this work I'm gonna keep saying it through the whole podcast thank you um so rift zone is the title of the book and um the idea of that title comes from a trailhead that's in Point Way Station um Uh, the rift zone trail and it leads past the epicenter of the 1906 earthquake uh apparently the earth 
tore apart there so much that a cow <laughs> fell into the hole in the ground. Um, but I actually have been writing these poems for 10 years since I came back to California. Um, I grew, grew up in a town I thought I would never return to, and I went to Brooklyn, and I um, circled the rungs of the publishing industry, and uh, thought I would never, ever come back, and then I did. And um, so there's poems of, of growing up and poems of coming back and uh, poems of reading the landscape differently. Uh, but the idea of rift zone is a fault line term. It's a tectonic plate term. And it really is about the idea that underground, the earth is always pushing against itself at a constant pressure. Um, but when the tears happen and the quakes happen, we feel it as a sudden, sudden uh, ripping. And, you know, we've lived in this moment of so many rippings. You know, we in California think about earthquakes all the time, but this feeling of being ripped and ripped and ripped. Uh, uh, anyway, that's that title, Rift Zone, and where I got it. Um, so, yeah. I would love for you to start us off reading a couple poems from the book, and then we'll dive right in. Sure. Um, so I wanted to start, I guess, uh, with a poem about this moment, really, um, about mothering in a world where great injustice is happening, um, a, a moment where you're trying to keep, on the one hand, the world safe for your kids, and you're, on the other hand, completely aware of how unsafe the world really is and trying to manage that in your body. This poem is called Untitled with Sadness and Suckle. Tonight's emergency is not emergent. News that stays news but is not a poem. Beating, shooting, children in cages like when I was at Emily's watching cops chase Rodney King. Same nectarine light. Sometimes I think that all privilege is is some safer vantage for watching the trauma America happen. What human words will I use to explain? In the dream, I am screaming. My daughter is asking me why. Now the baby she is squalls awake and I haul myself out to offer suckle, oxytocin, provisional safety. We are animal in the broken ecosystem. Her head smells like milk on my breast. Um, one of the things that's interesting about growing up here and coming back is that sometimes you realize that you're perched on a history that no one articulated to you. Uh, that the violence under the skin of California is very profound. And, you know, Joan Didion has this beautiful trope of some dreamers in the Golden Land, as if California is this place of amnesia where people kind of relocate to forget themselves. And it's kind of uh, lemon trees and um, new suburbs and, for and forgetfulness, really. But, but um, under the skin, there is a lot of violence that has made this place forgetfulness possible and made this place possible. So anyway, the little suburb that I return to is on one hand really boring on a certain way, certain kind of vantage. 
And on another hand, um, under it is, you know, Ohlone, Spanish, Mexican land grants, um, and then Japanese internment. So this poem is about visiting one of the houses that remains from that era. In fact, it did remain and it was just recently torn down. Um, if you were watching me read this, there would be some words that were struck through and I would do a little gesture with my hand to show you that the word was there and not there at the same time. But I guess you'll just have to listen to my voice because we are on a podcast, which is such a great form that I love. This poem is called Raw Notes for a Poem Not Yet Written, San Pablo Avenue, El Cerrito, California. I walk by the Japanese ruins gated behind cracked pavement lot where the bare hills, a riot of poppies, frame little sh, wild lupin, geranium, hothouse thorns. They never came back, their white neighbor saved, not all of their business. In the windows, torn rice paper, half a Shinto shrine, 60 years later, toppled where they were taken, last of those buildings, down in, oh, my town. We perch on what was done here. My best friend's grandmother, my first boyfriend's grandmother, I knew it later, they never spoke of it to me. Whiskey crates and damp mold of abandoned places. Coyote bush rattles, seems to be asking, who will they take next? When are they coming? Um, I'm going to read two more poems and then I think we can talk. Um, but I did at this moment just want to write, to read a poem to all the people that are out marching because that is very brave right now. And I will be among them uh, soon. Once again at Nonviolence Training 2017. Because the white supremacists are coming, because the threat, because Charlottesville, and if you don't, who will, and you never know what baton, what chemical, we are marching. We plan chants, make signs at church, large assembly bodies, linoleum soup, cardboard and markers and salt fog drifting. We bear forward our fury and sorrow. Estuary, sanctuary, room for our hope lights. Hate is toxic to all living creatures. Shalom, salam, we root our anger, are alive together, must now be shields to one another. And John said, be a witness. We brace one another, plant our feet in fog, promise to stay together. We will not raise our hands. We are not leaving. And uh, Stephanie and I were just talking about the length of the quarantine. Um, I think we're on here where I am, day two of the curfew, day six of the protests, and month three of the quarantine. And um, I just wanted to honor the parents because it's been so wild and so intense to juggle all these needs in a small home and to lose the basic foundation of childcare. Um, just, just a little amen from all, from all parents everywhere. So, uh, 
this is a poem for blackberry season and hopefully this will bring you some joy as well when that comes song with wild plum and thorn the morning is cold and the world is hard but even in fog it is still midsummer the kids need to play and the grocery budget ticks towards nothing the way the world tips towards doomsday the walls in my chest will not let me breathe and all the screens flicker and still answer nothing so i take the children down to the bike path with buckets and a few blessed hours wander a corridor of weedy fruit blackberry wild plum all overhung we leaners or gleaners half acrobatic lost among boughs alone till i notice others stopping with buckets or tiffins in many languages along these tracks picking what weeds we still hold in common as dry heat builds and fog thins in common in common the thought feels strangely radical, crumb or bloom beyond loneliness. For a while I feel entirely animal, little forager, hungry for fruit. Black sparkle, pale pit and thorn, weeds binding some world together. A word appears in my mind, hold fast, hold fast. Sprout, raw volunteer, for a while it is hand to mouth and to bucket, breathing, still here, still here. I love that one. I think that it's entirely appropriate to start on this moment of hope and beauty. Um, in spite of, at that point in the book, we've learned a lot about the history of California and how fraught and complex and violent it is and um, deeply unstable physically and existentially also. But you brought up this idea that we're raising children here yeah. and that if there's a certain responsibility to keep hope and beauty alive to mm -hmm. convince them to fall in love with the world. There's also, I loved that poem. I, I marked it down because the book is circular. The book circles the same sites, the same physical sites. And to think that this is the land that was granted by the Spanish, to think that this is the land where the adobe was built and then torn down and the strip mall is torn down and still you're out with your children and there's magic to it. There's magic, there's grace, there's abundance. Um, and so I think that the book in general is, is, doesn't askew reality in any way, shape or form. It is about how complicated it is to be a human and how, um, how complicated it is to carry our privilege and our knowledge and move forward. Um, but moments like those, there's such a sense of um, optimism. I really love that poem that you just ended with. Um, I'm gonna start because I also moved back to California 
2015, after many, many, many years away, and I was in shock at how little I knew about the place I was born. My then boyfriend took me up to, and I'm from Los Angeles, and Tess writes about the Bay Area. The town she's from is called El Cerrito. We'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> My then boyfriend took me up to the site of Owens Lake, or what was once Owens Lake, and told me a story about how we built Los Angeles by building an aqueduct that siphoned off water from this river, this lake, this entire valley, and we've destroyed it. And I became obsessed with this area of the world. I became obsessed with how Los Angeles was built, the choices that people made to prioritize development over the environment, um, the way that we've been stealing water for a hundred years, and I came to think of it as the kind of original sin of the creation myth of Los Angeles. And while I was reading Rift Zone, I feel like there are so many original sins mm. that you are referencing. But I'm wondering if you can think of one in particular that either started this book or feels so connected to our current moment. Um, yeah. Tess, your internet's cutting out here. Oh no. The town that I grew right on the edge of what they call no good. Do you want me? Do you think we Sorry. hang on, let's 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 stabilize here. Yeah. Looks like it looks like it's better now. Are you on Wi-Fi? I am on Wi-Fi, but I was wondering if I patched in the um in my own, uh, sorry, what's it called? Hotspot. Okay. Do you want me to try that, or did? Um. Yeah, you're still you're still kind of jumpy, and I'm not getting all of your audio, so I want to make sure we don't Just miss anything. Just a second. Yeah. Okay. How's that? That's good. That's better. Yeah, I just, you know what, I've used this room um, the entire semester that I've been teaching at UC Davis, and I've had internet problems on one other day in the last three months, so it's just, I guess, bad luck. Um, is that okay, though? Yes, yeah. that's better. Sorry, go ahead and resume. <laughs> and I'll just, we'll just start with whatever I say I'm, next. I'm making notes, so I'll, I'll cut out the, the interlude here. Yeah. Stephanie, that's such a a uh, rich question. And, um, you know, the town that I grew up in uh, is, was basically settled really fast in the early 1940s by two groups of people, or really one group of people, which were laborers who were recruited out of the South to work in the shipyards in Richmond. And um, they were also oaky. Okay, now we've lost you again. Oh my God. Oh no. Oh no. Um, can you give me one second to see if I can noodle this? Yeah, Let me absolutely. see if there's something else that I can fix about it. Okay, hold yeah, on. We'll do. I'm gonna pee. Okay. Is that okay with everyone? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Take a break.
resuming recording. You are on a roll, you got it. Stephanie, I love that question about the original sin because of course um, we can open the book so many places and put our finger down and we might find something. But I think in terms of my own sort of confusion and strangeness is the fact that this town that I grew up in um, is an endpoint on the, the Great Migration and also a place that the Okies settled out of the Dust Bowl. And um, so it was really settled rapidly by a bunch of people who came in and worked together in the Richmond shipyards. They were recruited out of the South um, and they were working together in America's first desegregated workplace with white people, black people, men, women. Um, and they did it in 19, the 1940s and without really anything but the benefit of having crossed the country. There hadn't been a civil rights movement and they, they brought their racism with them. And so the school district that I grew up in had this kind of ugliness in it. You could, you could just feel it. And it was later that I recognized that there had been, you know, the concept of a sundown town. I hadn't known about that. I hadn't, didn't know that, that the suburb that I lived in had been sort of the white suburb. It wasn't a fancy suburb. It was a working class suburb, but it was, you know, the, the thing was <laughs> without naming this, there was an ugliness to decode and a sadness also, um, that you could just feel it was palpable. And I think it was something I really wanted to get away from. Uh, it felt like, hey, I'll just move, you know, first to Berkeley and then to New York. And um, really to be able to name what that history was um, and know what it was, was really important to me. Yeah, I, I feel that. Um, I feel that as you're, it, it's almost like you're excavating as you are home, you're trying to pull back layers and move towards some kind of, I guess it's a fundamental truth or move towards some truth about the place. I, I do think that what you were saying about this ugliness or darkness or this mystery that you feel that you need to pull apart gets me thinking when I was writing Stray. So I was really obsessed by the idea of the way the psychological landscape colors the physical landscape, how I could drive into El Cerrito where you live and not feel that, but that the violence that you talk about and reference, whether it's the earthquake when you're a girl or um, a classmate of yours brings a gun into school or this sort of awareness of a simmering racism or some systemic injustice that you can't put your finger on as a child and you don't quite know how complicit you are. I felt all of that, but that is really a function of being from that place. I think most people go, El Cerrito's next to Berkeley. It's beautiful, it's wealthy, it's uh, Northern California gorgeousness. Um, 
And so I wonder, were you, so you were trying to dig past this veneer of your town. Is that right? I think digging is a really good um, word for it. And this notion of sort of taking the soil seriously as a mm. core sample, really, to think, okay, well, I live in this house, and the house has a redwood tree in the backyard, and the redwood tree is on a stream that was buried to make the suburb, which is an ecological violence. And then, you know, in the life of this redwood tree, the, this, this land has passed hands so many times. You know, it under this very ordinary surface is... Um, you know, a land track that became available partly through Japanese internment, and under that is this strange protracted battle with a, a kind of a Mexican-American sovereignty in the area, and then beneath that is, um, is Spain, is like a piece of Spain that Spain, Spain didn't even really care about until, you know, they, they called it the North, too. You were calling it they called it the North. They didn't even realize what was up here. And they kind of were slow to even show up in the, in the Bay Area. They didn't, sh as, you know, colonially speaking, because they didn't even know there was a Bay. And then before that is Ohlone. And so we have this really rich and strange and powerful history. But um, I think you're right that it's also a personal exhuming of like, how did I not know that? How did I, how do I see it now? And just beginning to understand, um, you know, finding names for things. Is that noise really loud? No? Okay. Can, can we, how, where should I go back to? Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, just, I, I think that was fine. If you want to just keep going. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, I, Anyway, um, but this idea that you could reread your childhood in light of what you know now, um, I think that all of us see these disparities taking place. I think all of us actually witness many acts of racism in our lives and we learn privilege and we learn violence and we don't necessarily even know that it's happening when it happens and I think that that is very painful in a strange way and you know it's not the same pain that happens to people of color but it is a pain of of internalizing these kind of micro injustices or massive injustices or even just like having them exist with no language for them and feeling them and not being able to language them, um, I think is a kind, of, a kind of trauma that happens in its own way. So, so part of the excavating is about that as well. Yes, that is throughout all of Rift Zone. And I think when you're talking about growing up in the 90s, I don't think that we had such an involved vocabulary as far as racial politics go or about the stratification that we're experiencing in wealthy cities. And of course, the 90s is a very different time than right now. These things ebb and flow. But I think some of the most powerful poems to me are the ones where you as an adult are trying to come to terms with your privilege in punctuations and when you write, but you are lucky and you try to feel lucky. But then there is also this tension in being 
an adult woman who's also engaged in survival and how am I going to take care of my family? How am I going to show up for my children? How am I going to show up for others? How am I going to show up in the face of oppression? Um, and I think that that tension is not only so relevant to when to our current moment. I mean, we're taping uh, this in a period of civil unrest that feels both terrifying and hopeful, in my opinion. But I wonder, I wonder what you think, or like how that affects your day-to-day in San Francisco, a place that's often held up as an example of this extreme wealth disparity of, um, yeah. I, w- I just, I wonder how you, f- how you feel as a, as a writer trying to navigate this in your city. Um, right, the economic injustice here is so wild that, that we can't make a middle class, you know, so rift zone, the tearing apart. We, the census, I think a couple years ago, we, we wouldn't, they wouldn't make there be one middle point for a median income in the Bay Area because it would be irresponsible, because there was a peak of poverty and a peak of wealth. There just literally wasn't a middle. Um, and, and that's really horrifying. And, um, you know, I think that it is really painful in Berkeley because on the one hand, um, there's so much liberal good feeling and on another hand, the revolution was never going to be made through expensive cheese. It just wasn't. Like, the revolution of expensive cheese is not an adequate revolution. And, um, and I think it is strange because, you know, my friends and my cohort were the, the children of hippies. Like, nobody, nobody paid better lip service than us and our parents. We really tried. And yet, somehow, what we've built you know, it, it, it hasn't worked yet. And um, it, it hasn't benefited everyone. And I think it is really an incredible thing to start to reckon with how can that be? Because I think the people of my upbringing are, you know, to a one, really, really, really well-meaning people. And I've written another book about my my own family's past in Virginia, which is a much more explicit history about, you know, being connected to people that are, were slave owners and, you know, that, that kind of reckoning and that kind of digging. And that book is, is called The Forage House. And it was my first book and it's set in Virginia. So, um, and in that book, while I was living on the East Coast, I often have this beautiful poem about California and how much I want a lemon tree. So it was really funny to come back and think, oh, like, I haven't, I haven't seen a named, this work, this work that I just did with my family in Virginia, and this excavation could equally be done here, and actually should equally be done here, Um, and racism is a, a powerful, you know, octopus, and you can cut off one of its legs, and it, it has a way of coming back, because it's very, it's a very deep, in the American DNA, and um, and 
it's, I, I hope that one of my goals for, I think for, for white people is just to become like low and easy and comfortable learning and talking about dismantling it and talking about how uncomfortable and awful it feels not only to other people, but to ourselves, how, how, how much we would like to not carry it anymore. I agree completely. Yeah, that um, everything you're saying has been on my mind the past few weeks. I your poem uh, Berkeley in the '90s, and I'm sorry if I pair. Yeah, it is called Berkeley in the '90s. I wanted to make sure it didn't have to it. To it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's. It's a beautiful narrative about growing up in, in this community that seems to value the right things. I think a lot about liberal idealism. My husband's from the Bay Area as well. And I, as soon as I met him, I had just come from New York. I was like, oh, you are this bullshit liberal California person that I've heard so much about with your idealism and your sense of civic duty and your eternal hopefulness. And I actually think that that's something that is very much of the Bay. I find, um, I find so much less engagement in the South, but that's a conversation for a separate time. But this schism <laughs> between, <laughs> between the well, the well-meaning and the practical reality, which you sum up at the end of that poem with, um, well, you, I mean, you can, you can read the two lines, actually. Is that okay? Oh, sure. But, well, yeah, Berkeley, Berkeley in the 90s, man. Um, so anyway, there's this long list of all the things we did and who we were, that we were kind of wayward and radical and, um, I'll just read the last couple lines so you get a sense of it. We were quick fish who read Gary Snyder in someone's dad's Mendocino cabin. Some of us climbed ferny gullies on winter solstice and got topless, decorated each other in white reindeer lichen, recited the Tao Te Ching, had sex on a cliff. Reindeer lichen was the revolution. Our new breasts in rain were revolution. We craved transcendental revelation, the radical and burning future. We lobbied for condoms in the high school bathrooms, even though the bathrooms needed toilet paper. I love, <laughs> I love that whole poem. So True much of, story. <laughs> so much of that is youth, right? That is the yeah. sort of like beautiful solipsism of being young and coming into your own as an intellectual and as a sexual being. And also it's a poem about missing the point, yeah. um, which I do feel, um, I guess that could be applied to all of us in our white privilege over our lifetimes in that we have crafted these narratives and we have tried for a certain kind of self-improvement, but in many cases we have missed the point and right. the world needs toilet paper. Right. Uh, not. Right. I not, want, yeah. The, not, I mean, the metaphor, right. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the toilet paper hoarding of this epidemic, but so it's like, we're talking about a foreign, you know, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's some basic, right. Some basic, we missed the, we missed the basic thing there. Yes. Uh, um, 
Let me see. Where but do I, I do, want? I do think, you know, Stephanie, it's really interesting because again, having this family in Virginia and in the South, there's, there is a way in which it's very explicit that this particular violence happened on this soil. And there is a lot of reclamation. Um, in some ways, I find, um, Virginia an easier place to have an explicit conversation about racism than sometimes in California. I think that I think that we don't actually have um, we, we haven't you know made monuments to our violence in the 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 high the junior high school that I grew up going to was called Portola and it was named for a conquistador who was on the De Anza expedition and only this year it was or a few years ago I don't know I'll just try that again. Only, uh, maybe it was two or three years ago, it was renamed for Fred Korematsu, who spoke up against Japanese internment and got an apology from the US government and got one of the first real, um, real apologies and sort of movements towards reparation. It's a landmark case. And so they named the, the middle school after him, Korematsu Middle School. And it was this moment of remembering that this, this violence had happened right here in our community. and and to, to find a way to remember. And I think, I think that part of the journey is just finding ways to share a history so that we can you know, all name this violence together, all name this past together, and then be think about how, what, what repair should look like, you know? Um, and certainly the economic part of it is true, you know? I wouldn't necessarily call it the toilet paper part. I would call it the something something that is 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 missing in terms of 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 of, of equity. In what you were just saying, there feels to me something uniquely Californian, and I'm not. This is not a podcast episode about California exceptionalism. It, it's actually kind of the opposite, but I. It's that amnesia that you were referencing earlier with Didion. I think in the South, they're so close to that history. It's so much embedded in families that have been there for generation after generation and in Confederate monuments and also in the active um, dismantling of those monuments that young people who grow up in the South are faced with. And in California, I think our de facto setting is to buy the dream. And this might be more true of Southern California, um, but to, to sort of take those good intentions and that idealism and that story that, that manifest destiny story and to forget the rest of it. I mean, there's this image in one of the poems of this old adobe being raised to the ground and being replaced with, um, is it a strip mall? Yes, I was just <laughs> hoping you would talk. Yeah, so the town of, um, of El Cerrito is built now around a really unfortunately blocky uh, mall called the El Cerrito Plaza. Um, and, but under the El Cerrito Plaza is um, the site of a, uh, a hacienda that was made of adobe. And 
um, it was actually an original piece of land grant from Spain. It was somebody, you know, one of the people who came on the Dienza expedition, the, the Castro family settled there and they had um, the entire, uh, I guess, the county, um, I, I think, I don't know what their land grant was called, but the streamline was then the next county over was Alameda was the other land grant. Um, and this building, this very, very beautiful building that had Spanish heritage and Mexican-American heritage and was, you know, belonged to this family, was, was just getting eyed by preservationists to save it. And then it mysteriously burned and uh, overnight sort of became a shopping center. And uh, I've always <laughs> really, really thought this shopping center was ugly. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's just... It's, uh, it's just really not. But I think once I discovered that this piece of land that was facing the Golden Gate and had open space and was, you know, a piece of our history and a, a public monument and could have could have been something that connected us to our past had just been paved over to make a, um, well, when I was a kid, it was Emporium Capwells and now it's uh, Ross Dress for Less and an ice cream place and a Trader Joe's. And, you know, I'm not so elitist that I look down at any of those things. It's just that they're sort of blocky and badly cited. And instead of having uh, memory, we just have commerce. And, you know, that's, that's too bad. Um, recently, yes. on the edge of it, they unburied the stream that they had buried. So that was a small victory for the land. Like, hooray, stream! <laughs> Wait, I think, did Jenny O'Dell write about that and How to Do Nothing? Did you ever read that book? I don't know if she wrote about that stream. I, I love that book. She, I love that book too. There's an essay towards the end that is about the uncovering of a stream, but it might have been in more of the Palo Alto area. I can't remember. I love that book mm -hmm. too. Um, that book actually sits well with Riff Zone. Oh, um, she's so great. She is so great. And it's really about paying this attention, paying attention in a way that I associate with poets and the way you do in Rift Zone, but can the average citizen become a better citizen by paying attention to the natural world? Those books would go well together for yeah. book club, anyone who's listening. <laughs> um, one of my, my daughter was just doing some um, Instagram art class, you know, during this quarantine, that's been quite, it's just one particular person who's really inspired her. And the, the artist was just, just calmly talking about drawing birds. And she said, yes, yes. Doesn't that feel good? Atten a paying attention is a form of respect. And she just said it quietly. And then she went on describing how to draw birds. But I thought that's right. That's partly why, you know, what po I think poets do hope for is that in gathering attention and turning it towards a thing, we offer, um, we offer some respect. It's not, it's not so much that that alone heals the injustice or undoes the history, but I think uh, the poem is kind of a monument made of air and it, it, it is for, it is for drawing together attention and respect. Um, yeah. Mm, I love that. That is gorgeous. Um, I think that's that, a, a beautiful oh, place to uh, transition into reading one more poem from Tess. What do you guys think? Can I read two more poems that go together from the sure. end of the book? 
Would that be okay? Yes. (laughs) Stephanie, I love your writing and I love that there's this synchronicity of of coming back and growing up and it's been so great to talk to you. Um, I'm grateful right now for for the chance to even think about literature in the midst of this crazy, crazy moment. Um, This has been such a treat. I just want to end with two short poems that are at the end of the book. Um, Stephanie, you mentioned one. It's called Punctuations and Wind. Then once again, someone is shot at a school by a sniper, by police in a movie theater, and the many homeless are hustled and hunted. You read how your clothes are sewn by slaves, your dinner fished by slaves, your fruit picked by starving children. Mostly you don't get away. Mostly you raise the children you have, afraid of no health care, of losing the one goodish job you finally got. Mostly you keep your nose to the grindstone. Your heart flails a thick fish in your throat. You have felt for a long time that someone is watching. The administration is eroding your benefits. But you are lucky, so you try to feel lucky. By the numbers, you have always lived in an apartheid state. You look at your child, read reports of the tear gas, text a friend, cry at night. Some days you march when people are marching, some batter windows, some are hit, things are canceled. The year has been dry, even small rain will lead to mudslides. Some nights you wake only to feel yourself for a few minutes, grieving or praying and hearing in darkness, the old tree tossing and tossing and wild, the storm coming. And I just want to say an extra thank you to Skylight Books. I would love to say to people listening to this podcast, thank you for showing up for poetry and for breath. But also, if you love books, buy them, because we are now in the business of supporting the ecosystem that we want to exist when this crisis is over. And Skylight Books is such an exceptional store. I hope that you will go and, um, and, and buy a book for a friend. Buy Stephanie's book. Buy my book if you want, but buy a book. Okay. In Olima. And that's, that's the town I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast with the earthquake and the cow that fell in to the basically the tearing apart of the earth. In Olima. February, Buckeye unscissor new leaves. Cow's pasture, buffalo heads paddle, a kestrel perches on a bishop pine. Now, just above us, the mountain's humped spine pushes north to Alaska. Extinct invertebrates ride sea cliffs through time. Even these stones have lost cousins in Mexico. Even this freshet is landmass torn open. Even these rocks are reft from each other. Each shelf pulses onward, a restless swimmer looking for land, though nothing is still. Gray whales swim through ocean explosions along continents forged of cracked dispossession. Sunset today, the ridges grow luminous. Sharp air, dark spice, horses exhaling. They stomp on the cold, steaming, visible earth. We heat the stove, the children are napping. The cabin's the raft on which we are floating. Below us, the crust is molten. 
is nationless. We only light our lamps on the rift. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tess. That was wonderful. Woo! I wanted to pop back now that I'm not scared I'm going to lose my audio. <laughs> oh my god, it's such a treat to hear you read these. Oh wow, it's so fun, it's so intimate, isn't it? It's like, I get to read just, I'm just like, you know, st my audience is Stephanie and Maddie, that's the best. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.